Hi, this is Judy with this week's blog post, which is actually going to be a podcast this time. And uh, we're trying a few and see how they go and love your, we'd love to hear your feedback on them. And the person interviewing me is Anthony Sano, who I describe as my magical, mystical marketing man and my techie guy and also a radio host. That's me. I'm the guy who knows what all these little buttons on the mixer board does. Last week, we talked about uh, sleep and mm -hmm. breastfeeding and mm -hmm. the connection between how a child or an infant's uh, sleep routine is actually something designed on purpose that way. Mm -hmm. uh, isn't something that uh, is designed to manipulate mom into living a life of hell, of not, be not being able to sleep. <laughs> uh, do you want to give a quick recap of what that, what that was? Yeah, it was basically... And, um, and I just want to pick up what you said, that their intention is not to give mom a life of hell. And I think that's a really important thing for people to always keep in mind through child rearing is that the most important people in your child's life forever will be you. And even in, when they really upset you and distress you, their intent is not to upset and distress you. They're somehow expressing something that's going inside. And one of the side effects of that is that you get upset and distressed, but they never, ever, ever want to break the connection with you. Like you are their connection to safety and security and self-worth and all those things. So no matter how pushed out of shape you are feeling by your kid's behavior, just realize they really, all they really want to do is be close to you. You know, it occurred to me after we talked about that, that the uh, the idea of manipulation was actually seen as being a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And we talked about manipulation when it comes to people saying, you need to sleep train your baby or you need mm -hmm. to get them to do something different than they uh, biologically know how to do. Mm -hmm. But the manipulation is actually a good thing because that little bundle of joy doesn't know how to talk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the little bundle of joy doesn't, you know, and, and I think, um, no, they don't. And they are... I mean, humans are absolutely the most, the very, very most helpless and dependent species on the planet after birth. They can't walk. They can't talk. They can't do anything for themselves whatsoever. They're completely, 100%, totally dependent on you. Those little thumbs can't even text yet. They can't even text yet. <laughs> no, they can't. And all they really know how to do at first is cry. And then they learn to smile. And that helps a lot. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's called an attachment behavior. Crying is an attachment behavior. Smiling is an attachment behavior. Reaching for you. I mean, there's this wonderful moment when you're feeding your baby and they put their little hand out and they pat your cheek. That's an attachment behavior. And they're saying, hey, you're okay. I love you. Um, hey, thanks for this boob. Yeah, thanks for the boob. Thanks for the bottle. Whatever. Thanks. You know, um, but they really are so powerless and um, dependent on you. And, and the last thing they ever want to do is alienate you because they need you big time. Right. And so just to be clear, that idea of manipulation that the baby may be working on is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. And they're not really working to manipulate you. What they're actually working on is to, to try to have some measure of control over their life. And yeah. they, act, they have so little. Yep. So, so little. And, you know, what you want them to do eventually is to feel that they have some power and control because you don't want them to be manipulated because they don't have a sense of an inner sense of, of power and empowerment and strength and sense of self. And they get that sense of self and empowerment from you being as responsive to them as possible. That's how they begin to feel empowered by your love and affection and connection with them. I mean, sometimes it's counterintuitive. It's like, you know, a, a lot of the, a lot of the information around, you know, letting your kids, you know, soothe themselves, work things out themselves, et cetera, was based on the, you know, now faulty knowledge that, you know, if you, if you force them 
to take care of things themselves, then they'll become independent. And, you know, what we've known actually for quite a while is that there's, there's genuine independence, which comes from a sense of tremendous inner stability and sense of self. And, and so you feel safe in moving out in a way. And then there's forced independence where the child just is like, oh, I give up. I can't take, no one's going to help me. I'm going to do it myself. And that just means that they're kind of alienated and distant. So it's, it's two very different kinds of independence. When, when I was doing the moms group last week, one of the things I loved seeing, a lot of the babies were in the crawling and starting to walk stage. And they were, they were doing what I call the yo-yo theory of child development, that they were getting to the point where they wanted to start exploring the world and they would start crawling around and then they'd look around, find their mom or dad and come crawling back, touch base, away they went again, came back, touch base, away they went again, explored each other because, you know, for them seeing other kids is is like this whole other world. Um, but that's, that's the real basis of independence when you can move out and you know you can come back all the time. And they're just, their inner, their motivation is to explore the world. The more secure they feel, the more they want to know about the world. So it may seem like a contradiction, but actually that's the way it works. And that's what all the research shows as well. And one of the other things that uh, you talked about, uh, one of the bigger things you talked about was the idea of a mom trusting her heart uh, yeah. when it comes to actually dealing with those uh, situations. Mm-hmm. Sleepy, cry, baby, all that sort of thing. Right, right. Or or the big one is, you know, it's a mama's girl, mama's boy. That That's, you know, I think I, one of my blog posts that, that, you know, people may say that your your child is a mama's girl or a daddy's girl or that whatever. It's a good thing. <laughs> you know, you want them to be really attached to you and really connected to you. And, you know, again, the more attached and connected they are and you allowing them to move away and not like holding on to them when they're ready to move forward um, is how they become genuinely independent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I've got a good friend who's got a, I think he's 18 months old. Uh, and that kid is just a rocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's <laughs> He's constantly going out into the universe and then, uh, he comes back and lands. Right. He checks in, gives a big smile, and then runs off. Yeah. It's really cool to watch. It's very cool to watch. And it just, you know, it's another developmental thing. It's like waking at night is developmental. The the, desi- the desire for some autonomy and independence is also developmental. Like if, if everything's going well, that's what your kids want to do. Mm-hmm. And they naturally move out more into the world. And just the more, the more secure they feel in themselves, the safer they feel doing that. Sure. So that was kind of a, an over, uh, overextended recap of what we talked about <laughs> right? last week, which, which is good. What did, do you want to talk about today? Well, what I was going to talk about was, was individual differences in children. Sure. And, um, I mean, that's another, one of the many factors that influence, uh, child rearing and child development and, and also a very critical one. It's another one where people, you know, people do a lot of comparison or oh, your child's doing that and my child's doing this. Is my child normal? You know, that there's that whole insecurity around who their child is. And, um, another thing we know from developmental research is that there are a huge range of individual differences between, um, everybody, you know, and, and one of the things I love about being around babies, I mean, I've been around babies for like a long time, like, you know, well over 30 years, seen a lot of babies. They all absolutely fascinate me because they're all putting the world together in their own way. And, and there's never two that are the same. They really are all individuals. And I think it's, it's fascinating. And one of the big challenges as a parent is, is kind of finding out who your little person is. Hmm. Well, I don't have a, a master's degree in education or mm-hmm. I haven't been around children that long in the same way that you have, but I guess I didn't necessarily find it any surprise that all children are individuals. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's not necessarily a new idea. 
Is it? it? It isn't, but to really internalize it is a, is a big idea. Okay. You know, because again, you, you, the books you read and the stuff you read online is a kind of, this is what three-year-olds should do. Or there's all this stuff about what children should be doing. And if your child doesn't f- fit within the norm, you start feeling really insecure. Hmm. Um, you know, or you may end up having a group of friends, you know, who know all their kids are kind of extroverts. And you have a child who's sort of an introvert. And, you know, you feel like, oh, what am I doing wrong? Um, and it's not actually anything you're doing wrong. It's just how the child is. It's just how the child is. And there's there's what they call dimensions of temperament, which are re- I find really helpful, you know, when parents are feeling kind of distraught about who their child is. And if the, if the parent's an introvert and their kid's an extrovert, it's like, <laughs> what is that child doing? It's like, <laughs> why aren't they sitting here quietly with me and, you know, just looking at the trees? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm thinking of my own childhood. All of my siblings were totally different. Mm-hmm. Totally different. Yeah, very interesting. Sorry, you said there was a, there was a term there, uh, 25 cent word. But yeah, it was di- it's dimensions of temperament. Okay. Yeah. Um, can you talk more about that? I will talk about that because I love it. It's it's actually quite old in, um, research. It came out of the 60s, I think, or the 50s. I can't even remember. But it was one of the most insightful pieces of research that, that I have found really, really helps parents. And I'll just go through them um, fairly briefly. But parents, you know, can just think about their own children. And, and I'm sure if you have more than one child, or if you have three or four child, children, you'll find that each one is really different. Even twins can turn out to be quite different, even if they're biologically identical, how their particular inborn temperament works with the environment, because kids are constantly constructing their reality. They can be very, very different personalities. That's very cool. It's very cool. <laughs> I kind of love it. Have you got a list of things? I have a list of things. I will go through the list. Um, okay, so the first dimension they talk about is activity level. And some children, babies, whatever, adults, are basically fairly low-key, low don't move around a lot. Um, you know, they sit still at the table or when they're reading, they just read. And then some people are super active and they need, to, and some babies and children are super active. They need to move all the time. They just want to go. Um, and again, that's, you have to work with it, right? Because yeah. you don't know, you don't know how your child's going to be. But, you know, you, sometimes you look at babies and some of them are just wiggling constantly and some of them just lie there really placidly and they're fine. And, uh, so that's, that's one dimension of temperament's activity level. Okay. Um, another one is rhythmicity, which is one of the most important ones from my perspective. Rhythmicity refers to how over time, how does your child flow? Like, is it every two hours your child gets hungry? Every two hours your child wakes up? Every two hours your child wants to do something? Um, whereas other kids like, oh, they slept for two hours. Oh, they slept for five hours. Oh, they wanted to eat in half an hour. Oh no, they want to eat in another three hours. I better have, try to have a nap now, but actually they're probably not going to nap now because they're not tired at that time of the day. So some kids are naturally very rhythmic. Like you can set your clock by them. And when you have a kid like that, you go, whoa, did I do this well? Um, and you, <laughs> and you think it's your doing, whereas your poor friend over there is kids all over the map. Um, and your, you never know. Your kid, yeah. their kid is a jazz musician with a beat and tempo all over the place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is an inborn trait. And with all these traits, it, it doesn't mean you just leave it be. It means you have to work with it and not fight it. Um, but that rhythmicity is a big one because, you know, people always tell, get your kids on a routine, get your kids on a schedule. In some kids, it's really, really hard. So the upside of that is that you can be really flexible with your time like mm. because you're not dependent on being home at a certain time for a nap. You can be out, you know, so there's, there's pros and cons to both. 
you know, there's pros and cons to having a child who's very active or very, you know, very placid. There's no, there's no right or wrong with any of this. It's how does it fit with you and how do you work with who they are? And we don't know where this, this temperament comes from. Like some people say it's genetic and some people say, no, it just, it's what happened in the womb or it's some interaction of all of it together. But they're definitely, most parents will say, yeah, they came out really different. (laughs) (laughs) That kid's not like me. No. Okay. What's next? Okay. What's next is approach and withdrawal. And this means basically how, uh, how easy it is for your child to basically approach other people or approach new event, new experiences, and just kind of go towards what's out there, as opposed to some kids who just pull back naturally. And they just find it a little overwhelming, find the world a little bit more overwhelming. So they tend to pull back and they might be called antisocial or shy or whatever. Um, and those kids who want to approach will go up to everybody on the street and talk to everybody and they're just out there. So again, it is who they, they, it is who they are. (laughs) So, um, it's working with it, but you know, it's important to know if you, if you're going to do a new experience with a child that they may very, they may find it very intimidating if they tend to be a child who tends to withdraw. So you need to approach it really slowly. And if your kid is just one of those approach kids, you just go out and let's do it. Yeah. And try to keep up with them. Try to keep up with them, actually. Yeah. And if you're someone who just zooms ahead and does things and you have a kid who likes to hold back, it can be a little frustrating for you. Um, you know, but you have to, you can't go, go out there and go talk to people. Like, it's not going to work. I can think of different salespeople I know who, (laughs) (laughs) who have exhibited those characteristics of being uh, the person who just sort of sits back and doesn't do anything as opposed Mm -hmm. to the one that's sort of out there. Right. And, uh, hey, how are you doing today? (laughs) Can I show you this car? Well, you'll see it. And I mean, it's, it, I, this is really an interesting process to go through. And, you know, when I, when I can work with a parent on this stuff, I love them evaluating themselves and their partners. And sometimes it's, it's the, it's a real problem when, when people get in a relationship that one of the person, one of the people is, you know, has a high activity and the other one has a low activity level. One likes to approach, wants to withdraw, you know, and then it can affect an, a relationship. So, I mean, it's just one tool you know, for people, but I really like this one in terms of getting to know your own child and really looking at them. And yeah. I would think that if uh, parents um, actually went so far as to identify themselves, it might actually give them some sense of relief as to how to actually deal with their kids. Absolutely. And deal with themselves, yeah. you know, I mean, cause some if you, you take all these traits and you put them together, you know, you, you can see how they really impact you as a person and how you deal with the world. And if you if you can come to a place of acceptance about how you are in the world, that would really help you come to a place of acceptance about how your kids are in the world. Mm, absolutely. Uh, what's next on the list? The next one is adaptability. Um, so that's basically, you know, kids who can go with the flow or kids who have a really difficult time with change. And children who have a hard time with change have particularly have a hard time with transitions. And the transition can be from wake to sleep, from sleep to wake from going from the house to the car, um, from going into the supermarket and out of the supermarket, from coming into Mountain Baby and leaving Mountain Baby. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, how well do they do with change? If you had a lot of company coming, some kids are just fine with it and some kids are really thrown off um, if they have to make a lot of adaptations. So again, it's just finding where your kid is on that spectrum and helping them wherever they are. Yeah, again, I'm thinking of uh, friends I know who have a hard time making the transition from sleep to awake. Yes. 
<laughs> Many people do. What else is on the list? Okay. That was number four, was it? That was four. Number five is intensity. That's probably pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> Some people are just really intense and they do things with great intensity. Um, whatever they're doing, it's full on mm -hmm. all the time. And some people are just low key and you want them to get real excited about something and they may be, but they're excited in a really kind of quiet way. Like I'm pretty intense. Like I get very, you can hear it on the radio. <laughs> I get really intense about what I'm thinking, what I care about. I'm pretty passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Some people have the exact same information that I have and they just talk about it really very relaxed. And, you know, it's really good to find out what your child's temperament is and, you know, anyway, <laughs> this is yeah. an example of that. Okay. And the next one is general mood. And some kids just seem naturally kind of happy. And some kids seem naturally kind of melancholy. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're miserable. It's just they're not exuberant and, you know, just... Uh, oh, look at the sky. Yeah. Oh, look at the tree. Oh. Yeah, right. Like some kids are more like that. And some kids, their mood is just a little more serious and a little more somber, which can be distressing for parents. I, you know, I know there are some kids, babies, like when they learn to smile, some babies will smile at everybody, everybody, absolutely everybody. And, and parents wait for their kids. They look at them and they go, yeah, smile, smile, it's okay, smile. And some kids just don't really want to do that so much. You know, like they kind of look at you and they take a measure of who you are and mm, okay, that's fine. I see who you are and you know, there's no smile and they're not that social. And that can be very distressing for parents sometimes, but it's, yeah, it's totally normal, and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your child. Yeah, just uh, another point of curiosity about that little personality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Number seven? Persistence and attention span. Again, some kids will just stay with something, and it kind of fits in with the next one, which is distractibility. But some kids can just really focus really well on something and persist and persist and persist and really work on it. And, and not get distracted by outside influences. And some kids have very short attention spans and move from thing to thing to thing to thing. It didn't used to be called ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> is that what it is? Maybe sometimes it is. Most of the times I don't think it is. I think it's the kind of thing you have to really look at the, the totality of the child's experience. Um, I mean, there is such a thing as ADHD. That's a whole other topic. I think it's grossly over grossly overused. But, um, but, but there are some kids who, who do move more from thing to thing to thing. And they're fine, you know, and that's the way they operate. And I know, you know, a lot of people, you know, can handle a lot of stuff. We, we call it multitasking, you know, and that works for a lot of people. And some people, it doesn't work. And some, some people just, you stay with one thing, you work on one thing, you finish that thing, and then you move on to the next thing and nothing will distract you and nothing will interfere with what you're doing. And that's, again, a, a kind of a temperamental thing. Uh, unflappability. Unflappability. You know, and the kid who can just sit there and, work on a puzzle till it's done without getting frustrated. And some kids will put two pieces in. If the third one won't get in right away, they get really upset and they, ah, I'm not doing this anymore. And, you know, and that's again, a thing that you work with the child and say, Hey, I'll help you. Let's, let's, let's get this last piece in, you know, or something like that. I'm picturing people in my mind's eye as to how you're describing their temperaments. These are sort of things that sort of stay with you then. They pretty much stay with you. You know, I mean, that's what the theory is that it pretty much stays with you. And it's, it's how you work with who you are, which, which is the big situation. And, 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 you know, choosing situations that some situations are really uncomfortable for you. You can either choose to slowly get them more comfortable. Or you can just say, I don't want to do that because I don't feel comfortable in that situation. And I'm okay because I don't like going to big parties you know, <laughs> or, or whatever. And as an adult, you know, knowing full well what your temperament is mm -hmm. or your disposition is like is uh, freedom. 
it is freedom. Yeah, it's freedom. It's it's again, it's getting to to acceptance of who you are, mm-hmm. and seeing what aspects of yourself or your child you feel like needs some work. Like if your kid really has a hard time meeting other people, you're really going to give them all the support they can to learn how to do that in a way that doesn't feel threatening to them. And just the last one, which again is very very important, is called sensory threshold. And some children are super sensitive to things visual, things auditory. Um, I'm sure. A lot of people out there know kids or have kids who cannot stand the label on the back of their shirt. Um, they can't stand the feel of a piece of thread in their sock. They can't stand loud noises. If lights are too bright, they really can't stand it because their, thresh- their threshold is very low. Like they have a very low capacity to handle sensory input, and that can be quite challenging. And then there's some kids who like, bring it on. You know, I like the loud noise. I like the bright lights. I like all that stuff. Would be would they be the same kids who actually enjoy roller coasters? Probably. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. And the sensory threshold thing is really important because some, some children like get very, very overwhelmed in large groups. Um, they get lar- overwhelmed in, you know, at festivals and things like that. They really can't handle it. Um, and, and this, the physical sensory thing is very important and, and parents think their kids are really weird. You know, like sometimes people can't stand, like, I know I personally can't wear merino wool. It makes my skin crawl. Um, but parents think that, you know, they want their kids to wear merino wool because it's so beautiful and wonderful and breathable and natural. But you, they put it on and their kids goes, ah, I can't stand this. That kid's sensory threshold is pretty low and it really affects them. So you can't make them want to wear it. And if there's something in their sock that's really bothering them, they won't be able to get through their day unless you find that little something in their sock <laughs> that's bothering them. Um, you know, same thing like this, the seam in a sleeper might really bother one child and not bother another kid at all. Back to the idea you had before that uh, every child is so unique mm-hmm. in their temperament. Yes. It's quite fascinating to actually be aware of what these different temperament traits are and really tuning into it and working with your child. Yeah, yeah. It's a really great way to, to work with your child and, and, um, and yourself and your partners and that sort of thing. And if you, if you figure there's, you know, there's nine dimensions with two possibilities, you know, you're really very active or you're very passive and you, the, the, the ways, the multiple combinations of those, you know, 18 points, do the math on that one. I mean, <laughs> we're pretty darn complex <laughs> just using those those uh, dimensions of temperament. Is there a sort of takeaway that you wanted to give parents about uh, the idea of temperament? I think the first thing is to really take a really, and you know, if you have a partner, really together, um, take a look at your children and, and say, you know, where are they on the spectrum of all these different dimensions? And are we having a hard time because we, we really haven't acknowledged that this is who this child is? And then also take a look at yourself um, and your partner where, where you, the two of you sit on these dimensions and, and it can really help you find places where you can be having conflict or places where you can really connect and how you can support each other and how you can support your kids. And a better understanding of yourself gives you a better understanding of how Always. to <laughs> deal with your child <laughs> as well. Absolutely. You've been listening to, I guess this is episode two. Episode two. Yeah. Right. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, share it with your friends. We'll see you next time, folks. Okay. Bye.